Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. In today's episode, I'm joined by three guests from Indiana University. They are Kim Novick, who's an associate professor in the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs, Rich Phillips, a professor in the Department of Biology, and Justin Maxwell, associate professor in the Department of Geography. They were here to talk about their recent article in bioscience on the topic of drought resilience in eastern oaks, and that's a topic that's going to be of ever more urgent importance given the changing climate. Uh, I'll go ahead and let them describe it, though, so let's go straight to the interview. All right, thank you all very much for joining me today. We're so happy to be here, James. Yes, thanks for having us. Great. So uh, today we're going to be talking about eastern oaks and drought tolerance. Um, I was hoping we could start off, though, with just a little bit of background on, you know, um, why oaks are important on the landscape. You know, um, what are what are they doing for us, you know, socioecologically um, in terms of ecology and, and those types of things? Sure, I'll be happy to get us started. Um, you know, so oaks are one of the keystone species in eastern U.S. forests, and uh, by eastern U.S., we really mean a really broad swath of the country, really thinking about most places east of the Mississippi, um, where oaks are uh, can be found in, in virtually every, um, uh, you know, uh, old growth or, or secondary succession stand. Um, they are a really important species ecologically, um, they uh, they produce acorns, um, which which most of the audience probably knows. But this is a really important food source that propagates through the animal food web within our forests. They're really important economically. Uh, they're highly valued for their timber. And something uh, that 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 really emerges as a theme in the paper is that they are really important in terms of their ecophysiological function. Um, you know, when I think about oaks, I also often use the word weird <laughs> to describe uh, how they operate. Um, and this is something that, you know, really caught our attention, you know, almost a decade ago um, when we were writing uh, one of the first papers on the theme. Uh, I actually inherited a data set that had been collected by Rich and, and some of my predecessors uh, that really measured and with a, with a lot of uh, spatial representative and, and temporal representativeness, rates of photosynthesis and stomatal conductance and growth of oaks and other species before, before, during, and after the 2012 drought, which was a really big drought event across much of the Midwest. And um, I felt really lucky to sort of inherit this data set um, and be able to tease apart how the different species out in, in our forest located um, in Morgan Monroe State Forest in, in southern Indiana responded to this sort of drought of the century sort of event. And what was amazing was that whereas many of the species like maples and tulip poplars did exactly what you would think a tree should do during drought, they reduced their photosynthesis and reduced their growth and reduced uh, stomatal conductance, the oaks really stood apart. Uh, they kept their stomates wide open, kept assimilating carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, um, and it was really phenomenal uh, the, the extent to which they continued to operate as if, if, as if they weren't experiencing a major drought event. Um, and so a lot of our work since then has just been sort of, you know, not only interrogating that data set, but in the case of this paper, trying to synthesize and expand using other sources of data to figure out why uh, oaks behave the way that they do and ultimately what, what are not only the benefits, but also the consequences of this sort of strategy. Okay. And in terms of that, you know, 2012, um, you know, epic historic drought. Um, was the thing that the oaks were doing pretty much just continuing to grow, um, whereas, you know, some other species potentially did not? 
not only did they grow, I mean, their, their growth, I, 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 you know, we have Justin Maxwell here who's a dendrochronologist, and he and his lab members study oak uh, growth and growth of other species extensively, so I'll probably punt questions specifically about growth to, to Justin. But while, while their growth was reduced somewhat, um, not, not to the same extent as other species, but was really, what was really surprising was the extent to which they kept their stomates open. So, um, of course, uh, the, the stomates are the uh, small pores in the leaf through which carbon dioxide comes in and water escapes uh, as plants photosynthesize. And, you know, most plants will regulate um, uh, their uh, stomatal conductance uh, as drought evolves in order to prevent excessive water loss, which can be really damaging to the plant. It can create these really negative tensions within the plant xylem um, that can actually drive xylem uh, embolism and, and increase the risk of, of death um, due to hydraulic failure. So it's just really surprising to see a species like oaks that is continuing to keep their stomates really very open. And in our leaf level data, we saw no impact of, of soil moisture on stomatal conductance of these species during drought. Um, so it's a very risky strategy, right? It allows the plants to continue to uh, take CO2 out of the atmosphere through photosynthesis, uh, but exposes them to this risk of hydraulic failure. Yeah, I'll just add to that since, since Kim mentioned about talking about growth. Um, there, there has been some recent work talking about how photosynthesis and growth, growth are decoupled a little bit. So a part of your natural assumption might be, well, that makes sense. Maybe oaks are responding, you know, which is because photosynthetically they're not, uh, they're, you know, not shutting down. Maybe, maybe there's still a growth response um, there because uh, growth has been shown mostly be, to be driven by water availability. And so when you have a drought, I guess all trees do reduce their growth, but it seems like oak has evolved a strategy in which they use this opportunity as a time to really to, to outcompete uh, other species to continue to grow during these conditions um, at the risk of, of, of dying. So it's a really like sort of a rock star type of mentality in that, you know, you're just taking advantage of this sort of short term, uh, maybe, you know, tough situation and, and trying to use it as, as an advantage. But um, yeah, other other species like like sugar maple and tulip poplar reduce their growth quite a bit uh, during drought. Um, I will say some of the more recent work we've been talking about if you have a super severe drought like something that's you know two standard deviations from the mean or greater it does appear like some of that drought response converges across species where where maybe if it gets so dry that, that it no longer matters but particularly those mild droughts oaks are really uh they tend to use those as a sort of a competitive advantage at the risk though of uh of dying okay so they're taking kind of a high risk high reward strategy if it works out um you know they wind up taller than other species and are able to outcompete them. Um, if it doesn't work out and they die, of course they die and then, you know, there are fewer oaks. Is, is that kind of the way that they're adjusting to the scenario? I think that's a good way to characterize it as high risk, high reward. Um, you know, what's interesting is, you know, after we, you know, sort of analyze this initial data set that we collected back in 2011, 2012, and 2013, we were motivated to do a bit more digging to really understand and better characterize that risk, right? Because even though this was a major drought event, the truth is that drought-driven mortality in the eastern United States tends to be relatively rare. So in our particular study site, we didn't observe a lot of mortality. Um, so we want to be able to at least understand, well, okay, and to what extent was the risk of mortality increased in this particular drought event or by drought generally. And so 
a few of our PhD students, uh, uh, Steve Cannenberg, who was advised by Rich, and also Michael Benson, who uh, works in my lab, um, made some measurements on both uh, mature trees and tree saplings to characterize the vulnerability of xylem. Uh, to hydraulic failure. Um, so you can do this really at any time. You don't have to wait for a naturally occurring drought. You just extract branches and bring them back to the lab and subject those pressure uh, branches to a range of pressures and figure out at which pressure the xylem begin to, to embolize. And um, this was one of the most interesting results uh, to emerge from this line of work, um, uh, which was that we found that the oaks were surprisingly vulnerable uh, to xylem embolism and, and cavitation, such that their xylem fail at a much um, lower leaf water potential or stem water potential than the other species. So uh, it's you know really striking when you think about it that way. Not only do oaks adopt what we know is generally speaking a risky strategy of keeping their stomates open during drought for that carbon benefit, but they do so despite the fact that their xylem are especially vulnerable to cavitation. Um, so I think I love Justin's analogy of you know, sort of the rock star approach. There's very much like sort of devil may care, you know, they, they, um, <laughs> they go for it, uh, despite the fact that, that they are the species that are among the most vulnerable to this sort of hydraulic damage. And let's chat just a little bit more about, you know, some of that hydraulic damage, because I'm in a little bit of an, I know some of those words in, in different context type scenario. Uh, so, you know, what's, what's it mean when, you know, the, the xylem fail? What's it mean? What does cavitation mean in this context? You know, what's actually causing them to fail and die? Well, um, uh, I have my favorite analogy, so well, you can try it out on your listeners and see what they think. But uh, when I teach it to my students, I like to say, uh, you know, imagine you are drinking uh, iced tea, right, on a hot summer day. Right, so you have uh, you know a big cup, and it's got some ice cubes in there, and you've got a straw. Right, so you're drinking your tea through the straw, and when you have plenty of tea in your cup, it's very easy to extract uh, the tea, and, and you're you're enjoying your your delicious drink, and it's and it's uh, providing you with you know nourishment and cooling you off on this hot summer day. However, when you get down near the bottom, right, so now you have very little tea left, but a lot of ice. Uh, you still want to drink the rest of the tea because it was so delicious. But now what happens, first of all, you have to work harder, right, to get the tea out of the cup. So you have to pull harder. You're increasing, right, the suction <laughs> through the straw. And you can imagine here that the straw is the xylem. Um, so that's one thing that happens. But also, that is not the only thing that happens. Now there is a sound associated with your attempt to get the rest of your tea out of the cup, right? You get some air bubbles in the stream. And you can kind of hear that as a slipping sound as you as you finish your drink. But it's an analogy for what can happen uh, to the plants as drought progresses. So when soil moisture becomes more limiting, um, uh, at the same time, the uh, atmospheric vapor pressure deficit is rising, which is sort of like the atmosphere pulling harder on the water that is in, in the xylem or in the straws. But also the risk of air entering that water stream becomes much higher. And because the tensions inside the xylem are so strong, right? Because it takes a lot uh, to be able to pull water up, you know, extract it from soils where it's already tightly bound and pull it all the way up 30 meters to the leaves in the top of the canopy. We have these really strong tensions. And when you get air, air bubbles in there, they can actually rapidly expand and fill up um, a straw, right? We want to think about it simply. Um, and so as that starts to happen, and it can actually be a runaway process where if you lose one straw because now it's filled with air and can't be used to transport water, 
and increases the likelihood that the nearby straws or the nearby xylem um, will experience the same thing, which is the embolism or, or cavitation. Um, I tend to use those words inter interchangeably. Um, so that's sort of what happens, but as, as the water becomes limiting in the soil and the vapor pressure deficit becomes so high, the plants have to work a lot harder to get the water to the leaves and it increases the risk of air seeding and, and consequent uh, cavitation. Yeah, I'll just add, as, and also some plant species can try to overcome this by um, basically, you know, dismantling or, or repairing these embolisms, um, but it's not necessarily always particularly successful, and so it can then lead to mortality. So it's sort of these are like kind of permanent damage that can occur to the, the stem of the tree. Okay, that's interesting, and, and I get it now. Um, thank you. So I, I have a, I have a question. But I, I want to talk about sort of the implications of this, you know, in a moment. Um, but before we do that, I, I was curious a little bit about, you know, the data. Um, and this may be for Rich. Um, where do these data sets come from? You know, obviously, Kim, you mentioned at the beginning, we're talking about uh, eastern oaks, like everywhere from east of the Mississippi. Where does that data come from? And, and, you know, kind of how do we have information about the way that you know, um, that oaks are responding to, you know, various environmental perturbations over time. You know, where does this, where does this stuff all come from? There are uh, multiple sources of data in this paper. I think that's one of the strengths of this analysis that really sets it apart from some other uh, previous work. We used uh, data in the literature. A lot of the physiological data came from the literature. There's now a big effort underway for ecologists to take their data that they measure on their individual plants and in their experiments and make those publicly available. In fact, it's required by, by funding agencies now. And so there are, there are databases that contain uh, these trait data. And so you can uh, download those data and do analyses on those. So we extract a lot of data from trait databases. We had a lot of data that we collected ourselves. Um, those are the, the physiological data. Um, but we also leveraged multiple other uh, data sources and, and networks of data uh, sources like the tree ring data, which Justin can tell you a little bit about because he's uh, intimately involved with that. But also the United States Forest Service collects data through their forest inventory analysis program or FIA program. These are hundreds of thousands of plots that they return to and remeasure the trees that are there, how much they've grown, what's died every five years. So they're just, there's a, a dedicated group of scientists that are going around measuring trees in the United States in these hundreds of thousands of plots that they return to them, as I said, at their frequencies every five years. And those data become available. And for the community, they've been doing that in some plots for upwards of 30 years now. And that's just an incredible resource for looking at change over time because we have you know, opportunistic events like the drought of 2012 or other changes in climate that are occurring, uh, increases in elevated uh, it increases in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is occurring, and we can start to parse out through all this climate data and meteorological change um, how certain species are winning and certain species are losing in the context of climate change. And I'll just hop in here and just say a lot of, in terms of how much data we had and all the different types, a lot of credit needs to be given to Kim because she went around and herded all of the, our cats. You know, she was. You know, as academics, we're not easily hurtable. And so, you know, I'm a, I'm obsessed with tree rings, and I think only about tree rings. And so it was really great to have someone be like, hey, you should take your, you know, this, this network you've been working on of all these different tree ring, uh, you know, uh, the different species of, of these tree rings growing together and, and, and compare it to this FIA data Rich is describing or compare it to this ecophysiology data that Kim has been developing. And so uh, I think that's what makes the paper so awesome because I, I mean, without, without her sort of 
vision, I don't think I would have ever, ever got there. Yeah. It, and it can be hard to hurt, especially during a pandemic. I think we joke that this is our pandemic opus. <laughs> um, it did take a to, uh, some time to put together, but I'm really happy that we stuck with it because, you know, it started out by saying that, you know, the results from our initial field study out in Morgan Monroe State Forest in Indiana suggested to us that oaks were really weird. But, you know, over the to over time, you know, we, we, we have to scratch our heads a little bit and ask, is it the oaks that are weird or is it our site that is weird or maybe we're weird and how we approach <laughs> the research. And so uh, with this paper, we had a chance to sort of check our understanding of, of what we think we know about oak drought responses against what we can learn not only from synthesizing results through a meta-analysis from many other site-level studies, but also harnessing, as, as Rich and Justin suggest, the rich information contained in the tree ring and, and uh, forest inventory analysis networks. So um, largely, we, we, we still stick with our initial conclusion. Oaks have an unusual drought response strategy, um, uh, um, but it, it, was, it was nice to be able to, to reach that conclusion using many different independent sources of data. And I'll add that each data set has their own limitations. Uh, so tree ring data, you are only measuring trees that are alive and you can measure the rings in. So you don't get any sense of mortality. You may say, oh, look at the oak strategy that, that has evolved in response to drought, but those are the ones that are living. So you're not necessarily looking at the consequences of the drought if, if mortality was induced. Um, a lot of the physiological data are made sometimes they're made on small trees because it's easier to access the plant canopies or they're made on just a select number of trees because it's very difficult to get leaves off of the tops of canopies so you know by leveraging all these data sets and having them all sort of point to some similar conclusions uh it was a really useful way of thinking of the totality of sort of the oak experience and how they're you know, this perplexing case of how they seem to be responding to some of these environmental changes no, that's really cool. And thank you for pulling back the curtain on that a little bit, because I think a lot of times, you know, um, uh, when lay people such as myself kind of hear from scientists, we hear about the conclusions, but we don't hear about, you know, the cat herding that that has to go on in order for those conclusions to be made. Um, I, I have another question. So we've got, I think, a decent idea of, you know, how, um, you know, oaks are responding to droughts and, and how that it's somewhat unusual compared with other species. Uh, but I'm curious, what are the implications of that? You know, in that, in that we could take a historical view and talk about, you know, um, you know how stands have developed and, and that kind of thing, or you know, and then maybe turn looking forward and uh, talk a little bit about how that's going to be, um, you know, affected by climate change um, or is currently being affected by climate change. So you know, kind of what what do we draw from that? What's this going to mean for um, you know, kind of oaks in the future, and what's it meant in the past? Yeah. I think that's a great question, and actually, that the historic view is really important here because it's also a major, major theme uh, of the paper. Um, so, you know, increasingly, I find that much of the work that we do really ties back to the story of forest cover change in the eastern United States, um, which, you know, we could we could begin the narrative sometime prior to European colonization. Uh, when forests really reigned supreme across most of the eastern United States, they covered most of the land. Um, they were not unmanaged forests. Indigenous peoples, uh, through uh, selective harvest and, and controlled burning, um, helped to sustain the oak hickory forests that people like my ancestors would have run into as they moved west. Um, but as those European colonizers did move across the country, they, they were very good 
at harvesting nearly every forest stand that they encountered. In Indiana, the extent of deforestation in the 19th century was 90% or more. Um, so these lands were clear-cut in some places for timber, sometimes repeatedly in the same place, and then other places, like much of the Midwest, cleared for agriculture. And managed as such for, for some time, um, but the, the management practices were not sustainable, such that by the time we neared the turn of the 20th century, many of those farmlands had fallen out of productivity. Uh, soil erosion was severe, um, which also led to severe problems with, with flooding. The landscape was really denuded, um, is one of the technical terms, but many of these landscapes were barren and unproductive, and these farmlands became abandoned, um, such that by the 1930s, um, the stage was really set for what began a century of reforestation across much of the East United States. Um, you know, these farmlands were abandoned um, at the same time uh, as part of New Deal programs like uh, uh, the Civilian Conservation Corps. Uh, there was a lot of work being done to do some of that erosion control work and also in some cases to, to, to plant forests and accelerate their regeneration. Um, so our forests, not all, but many, have come back over the past, you know, 100 years or so. But at the same time, we know that's not the only major change that has been affecting the United States, you know, from an environmental perspective. This is also the century of climate change. And so it's really interesting to try to disentangle the impact of this reforest, forest regeneration, and I should mention under intense management and, and fire suppression, right? Smokey Bear is also nearing uh, his 100th birthday. Um, you know, so we have, you know, changes in management, reforestation, <clears throat> at the same time that we have changing climate. And so you know, trying to understand how those factors work together or independently to drive things like species composition change is a really interesting problem. Um, and in our case, the paper is motivated by what is a clear, ongoing, long-term decline in oak abundance relative to other species. Um, so, you know, part of what we hope to do by sort of better understanding oak drought responses uh, is understand the extent to which, you know, shifts in hydroclimate versus, let's say, shifts in management um, may be driving this long-term decline in oaks so that we can better understand how to manage um, to sustain oak populations moving forward. Yeah, I'll just add to that. There's, you know, stepping back a little bit, just the degree to which the grading forests of the eastern United States contribute to removing carbon dioxide, removing CO2 from our atmosphere is significant. And so one of the big unknown questions that a lot of research groups are working at is trying to predict what's going to happen over the next 50 to 80 years as climate changes, which species are going to do well, and how is that going to affect the degree to which forests can continue to absorb CO2 and slow climate change. They're basically like a, a break that can that slow down the pace of climate change by, by storing that carbon into the wood, which is a slow cycling uh, pool of carbon. And we don't know the answer. It's complicated. It's not just climate change that's happening. There's elevated CO2 that's rising fairly linearly. Um, there's uh, There are changes in nitrogen deposition in the atmosphere. That's pollution, basically, that comes in through uh, the air. And all of those things conspire to influence which species are the winners and the losers. And so we're taking a, a sort of a snapshot of that to look at oak, which are just such a foundational species. They occur across this entire region. They're actually on most continents of earth and there are many, many uh, different oak species. So the family, the genus Quercus is enormous. And so the, it's potentially very consequential thinking about 
how this species, and we didn't look at all these other uh, species of oak, but basically thinking about one of the most important species on earth and its potential to deal with some very strong changes that are coming down the pike is going to be critical for understanding the degree to which we can potentially slow climate change. And, and, I'll, and I'll just add too that, that from what, what we learned from this paper is at the very least concerning because what we're finding is that oaks with their risky strategy, if we are going to be experiencing uh, more frequent droughts that are hotter, so therefore the VPD is higher, um, the, the evolutionary strategy would be for oaks to continue to grow during that, those, those events, which puts them at risk of mortality as, as we continue to, to increase our, our threshold of, of, of hotter and hotter droughts. Um, so it's definitely, worth, it's definitely concerning at the very least. Yeah, that, I would say I, sometimes I phrase this that it, it, we're probably headed for potentially the perfect storm of um, a, a positive climate feedback where the plants that are the trees that are starting to become dominant in our forests are increasingly ones that ha are more water demanding. And if there are shortages in water, not, there, there's a, been an increase in a lot of total overall precipitation. But if that rain is not coming in the middle of the growing season when those plants need it most, you could potentially have a summer drought. And that's what we uh, were a lot of, there's a lot of concern about. So as you increase the temperature and you increase the demand for water that the atmosphere is in terms of pulling it away from the plants, um, having all these species in place that are not well adapted to deal with those conditions could potentially lead to less CO2 being removed from the atmosphere and therefore a positive or amplification of climate change. Okay, so that, that sounds like an incredibly unfortunate, um, you know, feedback loop that you could easily get into. Uh, is there anything we can do? Um, you know, is there, are there things that could be, you know, uh, attempted from a management perspective that might, you know, kind of help forestall that or prevent it? Um, or are we just kind of along for the ride? Well, we can stop um, burning fossil fuels, or at least move in the direction of rapid economy-wide decarbonization um, uh, would be the most effective way to reduce the threat that, clim uh, that climate change poses, not only to oaks, but most of Earth's flora and fauna. Um, but, you know, it, it, and we're working on that, right? Um, and, and, you know, I, uh, beyond that, though, I do hope that our paper can point to some, you know, management-relevant um, conclusions. You know, so one, one thing that really emerged from this paper is that, uh, you know, we tend to think of oaks you know, often we think of them as sort of a, a big family, <laughs> but the truth is there's a lot of diversity within that family. So there are white oak group species, including Quercus alba, and then there are red oak group species like red oaks, And but then there's many others in each category. There's probably at least a dozen or more. Justin might know specifically how many white oak trees versus red oak trees we have. But we find that there are some clear differences <clears throat> in how they uh, respond to droughts um, and also in sort of their long-term uh, demographic patterns. And so um, really thinking about management strategies that, that target one species or the other um, seems really important. And also thinking about um, uh, what we also find is that there are gradients and responses as we move from the wetter end of the range, you know, sort of in the northeast, uh, west to the drier end of the range out in Missouri um, and, and those places. So uh, having adaptive strategies that match the the climate seems important. Um, but we, we still have a lot to learn too, I have to say, but it, it sort of points in the direction of where our management-oriented work could be heading. And I'll just add really quickly, it's not necessarily a climate change solution, but um, part of the decline in oak abundance 
um, in the literature is a little bit of a con contradiction in terms of whether it was climate uh, based or maybe maybe fire suppression based. And for me, this paper really made convinced me that a lot of it is it's fire suppression. And so so reintroducing fire in a safe, controlled way into the landscape could be a really helpful management practice. I think that could uh, that this paper could show could really benefit uh, the oak species in terms of the, allowing them to regenerate and and um, and things like that. Yeah, and there, there are a lot of foresters and research groups that are working on that right now. So that would be sort of, you know, good news to their ears. Um, I'd just also add that in a lot of restoration efforts, there's a, a concerted effort now to plant species that you think will be best adapted to the climate that is going to be experienced by those trees decades into the future. So we're, if you're involved in some kind of a restoration project, you wouldn't necessarily select species that are the ones that are adapted to the present condition. You would try to think forward and think decades ahead. And because trees are long lived, um, that's considered to be a more successful way of, of promoting and ensuring the successful establishment and long lived uh, nature of these these stands. Okay, great. I think that's an you know an excellent overview. Um, and you may have partially answered this next qu next and last question, but um, what's next for your work? Are, are you know you've you've completed the pandemic magnum opus? What's the what's next on the horizon? Is you know is there more work along these lines? Um, what kinds of things are you thinking about? Yeah, I'll be happy to jump in here. So you know, one of the things that's just persistently frustrating with our work, you know, our site level work, and also this this synthesis is that we've historically lacked. Uh, you know, aggregated and, and continuous and standardized information about those tensions in the plants, uh, the water potentials that, that not only move water flows, but also determine the risk of hydraulic function. Um, as Richard alluded to earlier, it can be really hard to make these measurements, especially on our tall forest. Uh, historically, uh, we've had to do it by extracting leaves, which we usually do with a, a boom lift or a slingshot, and then these are manual, you know, sort of leaf-by-leaf -leaf measurements in a pressure chamber, such that the temporal resolution of these time series is really coarse, you know, weekly or monthly, um, and so we can't really disentangle, for example, the role of drying soil versus rising BPD. So um, over the past couple of years, uh, the, there's been growing interest in the use of psychrometers, which allow for continuous um, observation of these tension forces, uh, which we are really excited about because when you get the information, you know, at that time scale, then you can begin to look at how vapor pressure deficit versus longer, you know, ch you know, changes in soil moisture, which take longer uh, affect, affect those tensions. So that's, that's one next thing for us is to, to see how well we can get those psychrometers working in our forests. Um, and then also more generally, work to establish sort of centralized databases for water potential observations to make, make this task also easier for other scientists. One thing that uh, connects my work with Kim's work very well is that her focus is often on the above ground parts of the plants that one can see and measure. And my, <clears throat> excuse me, focus is much more on the soil and what's happening down in the root systems. And so um, that's something that our research group is looking at is some of these soil factors that may be other modulators of this sensitivity of, tree, of oaks and other tree species in the eastern forest to drought. So the type of soil that could be the soil texture and the degree of the amount of sand or silt or clay and how that affects uh, the how water is held in the soil and the degree to which plants can extract that water but also the microorganisms that live in intimate association with the trees and may play a role in helping them access 
um, parts of the water that are in micropores and things, ways that the, the plant roots can't necessarily access. So we're looking at the associations with soil microbes and how they affect tree drought tolerance, but also the soils themselves in a way that it's very hard to do in these big networks because to really look at the soils, you have to do it at a site, you know, individual sites, and you have to actually have the soils in hand. So we won't have as much synthetic work from across a big network, but we're doing some of this very site-related work to at least start to see if there's something worth uh, exploring at a more regional scale. Similarly, uh, I'm doing more, actually, less, uh, more site-specific uh, analyses. Um, uh, for tree rings, what's really great about them is uh, traditionally they, you need a lot of years of data um, if the tree is pretty old. But that leads to biases because we tend to target those big old trees that are in the forest. And so a lot of our understanding about, at least from a growth perspective, how climate impacts growth are biased because we've targeted these old trees. And so I've been doing a lot of work where we're focusing in on not just the, the canopy dominant trees, but also the, the intermediates and the suppressed and the um, and this can allow us to see how, how this relationship may change through time for a tree and also uh, better ground it in the, uh, in the greenhouse experiments because we can make a, you know, a younger you know, sapling type of comparison to what's in the forest as well. And so that's what we, my group's been working on a lot. But again, it's, it changes quite a bit from site to site. So similar to Rich, what Rich was saying, we've been kind of focusing in on specific sites to see what we can find and, and then maybe over the next few years, kind of expand that. No, that's fascinating. And it sounds like there's going to be quite a lot of interesting research to read about going forward. So i just like to thank you all very much for joining me today. I've learned a lot and I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, James. Thanks so much. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.